welcome to the podcast series, The Quest for a Functional Occlusion. And today, my guest is Dr. John Nosti. Welcome, Dr. Uh, John Nosti. Um, you are specialized in uh, functional cosmetics, full mouth rehabilitations, and uh, TMJ dysfunctions. You are located with your practice in New Jersey. And you do a lot of lectures in America nationwide about occlusion rehabilitation and the technology you use for it, like the T-scan uh, and the GVA. And we probably come later into it, what it, what it means, the GVA or the GT, um, but that's for later. Uh, you have your own education program, the Clinical Mastery Series uh, of Ultimal Occlusion, Series 1, 2 and 3. And you are fellowships within the Academy of General Dentistry, uh, International Congress of Oral Implantology, and the Academy of Comprehensive Aesthetics. And you are a member of the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Um, last but not least, you're also a key opinion leader for Ivoclar. Um, did I miss anything, Dr. John Nosti, or uh, was it, was it <laughs> complete? <laughs> No, I'm very honored to have you here tonight. No, I think that's, that's, that's perfect. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very happy to have you as my, as my guest uh, tonight. And one of the first things I want like to talk with you about is, uh, of course, the functional occlusion. But why do you think that uh, occlusion does matter in our patients? You know, if I, if I look at that question, I think you know, if I can just kind of change that a little bit and say, you know, um, like, when does it matter? And, and, and why, right? As, as you said, you know, I think we get away with a lot in our practices. And, you know, patients come in and we could do single tooth dentistry on them. Um, or patients come in and we could do a crown or two on them. And everything works out fine. We follow the same systems that we were taught in dental school. But, you know, then maybe one patient comes in and we could be doing a single crown and, you know, things go haywire on that patient. But more importantly, it's looking at, well, you know, it's fine to practice day in and day out on single tooth dentistry and, you know, really doing some similar techniques that we were taught in school. But, you know, to me, really, really where it really matters is taking patients who want a brand new smile and you're going to put 10 units of, of all ceramics in place. Or if you're going to do something you're taught in dental school, do a denture, you know, um, even do a full mouth reconstruction. And now what's more important is everybody's talking about these all on X treatments where patients come in, they have, you know, a, um, a failed dentition. We take their teeth out. We put in four, six, eight implants, whatever it may be. And, you know, now we want to have a fixed prosthetic in place. You know, when I look at complications of patients who come in receiving these treatments and when things really start breaking down and failing, you know, yes, sometimes the plan itself was a problem, but for the most part, occlusion is the big factor in the success or failure of any of those cases I just spoke about. And then it's mainly probably not doing not looking at occlusion or completely forgetting about the the right concept for occlusion because all the cases you talk are are cases where you treat a lot of teeth it's not like what you what you started in the beginning that there's no single tooth dentistry 
it's quadrant dentistry or even more it's full mouth rehabilitation cases and then it's when it really matters absolutely i mean like i said you know we can you know we could do a single crown and you know a lot of people have that philosophy um you know keep it keep it low <laughs> or you mm -hmm. know take it out of occlusion you know and their philosophy is like you know as my my good friend jason olitsky says it's you know their philosophy is really air and that's like air you know <laughs> your restoration against air you know and it, it's fine that it works that way with one tooth but you can't do that when you're doing a quadrant of dentistry you can't do that when you're doing a denture you certainly can't do it in a full mouth reconstruction so for people who say well occlusion really doesn't matter you know i the question that i follow up with them is well you know what cases are you talking about and let me show you how it does matter yeah exactly exactly and 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 when because um when you started your career when you when you graduated as a as a dental student you started your career when when did you notice that that the occlusion had such an important role or was it already on your on, on the university where you were taught with the occlusion with the functional inclusion principles or, or was it later on during your career that you that you saw the importance you know it's, it's kind of that's a great question and you know, occlusion, I think at, at my school, much like many other doctors, I mean, it, it wasn't fantastic. Um, it didn't leave a lasting impression on me, certainly not to a point where I'm now teaching occlusion courses. Um, you know, and a, a lot of times when they discuss things like CR dentistry or CO dentistry, they, they literally said, you don't worry about grasping that now. You, you can learn that after you graduate, which, you know, to me is, is, is pretty interesting. You know, really what resonated in dental school for me, because I graduated dental school in 1998, which was kind of like just the start of the cosmetic revolution. Um, but to me, I had a whole year of orofacial pain and TMD um, in my dental school. So, you know, I really left there and I thought like, this is a really interesting field where you can change people's lives. You know, they didn't show us before and, you know, makeovers and things like that were, you know, obviously you can change people's lives that way too, but that wasn't really part of dentistry yet. So my first introduction to saving people or changing lives was through TMD. So when I got out of school, you know, I literally wanted to be the guy who knew everything about temperament or joint disorders. So mm -hmm. in my first two or three years out of school, every course imaginable that was given in the, in the United States by someone, I, I took it. Um, and it just so happened a lot of times, like, you know, TMD occlusion, these things always went together, it seemed like it at the time. Um, so, you know, to me, that was my initial introduction and in taking hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of education on TMD. And then from there, you know, I found some, you know, large format, you know, occlusion camps that are, that are pretty mm -hmm. popular in the U.S., um, you know, kind of, kind of went from there, but that was really, you know, really started with TMD. So it started with TMD, and then, then do you also think because in the TMD, that's always in in there's always a always a little bit of a discussion, right? Is the the occlusion is that um, a major role? Is is that has it so really something to do with the TMG or or not or with the TMD with the dysfunction? 
um, do we treat the dysfunction by adjusting the occlusion or do we not adjust the occlusion and still treat the tem temporal mandibular joint? What, what's your opinion about it? Should, do you, if you have something, someone coming in, and, and I know there are a lot of different kinds that can, you know, different things that can go wrong with the, with the TMJ, but w what's your opinion about it? Is it sometimes okay to adjust the occlusion in patients with, with a TMD? So I, so I look at it, there's, and, and when I teach a TMD course, if I give like a global, um, you know, look at a decision tree of mm -hmm. whose bite relationships you can change and, and whose you shouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, to me, it's more so looking at it in terms of, you know, is the occlusion playing a role? So that's a question you're going to look at. And to me, when I say is occlusion playing a role, I'm going to look for occlusal stability or mm -hmm. instability in the system. Yeah. So if that person has is occlusally stable, then I'm not really going to look at changing their bite relationship. If that person is occlusally unstable, then that's someone who that could be part of their treatment. So like in a hierarchy of what we do is I think airway is the first thing we look at. We make sure that, that there's not a sleep eating disorder. You know, then we look at, you know, is there instability in their system? Um, and, you know, then we go from there. Yeah, yeah, makes, makes complete sense. I, I really like the structure you give in there. Is there mandibular stability? So is there a stable occlusion? Yes or no? And then go from there. And, and do you look at the stable occlusion? Do you look then in, in centric relation for to find if there is a stable occlusion? Or do you look then in maximum occlusion? Maximal occlusion. We say maximal occlusion. Yeah. Or is it so I mean personal yeah, personally, I'm I'm going to look in, in centric in centric occlusion or centric relation. Um, even if there's a disc displacement, I'm still gonna see where is their seated position or where is their their centric position even if the disc is displaced um, i'm also going to look at you know um, is there wear present is there nowhere present are there abfractions you know it's you know globally it's looking at the whole system and yeah, yeah. you know if, if someone comes in and their their joint doesn't click and their teeth have nowhere and everything looks perfect yet they have pain that's a point in time we're going to look at. It's like, well, if if the uh, there's nowhere, their teeth fit together nicely, the the joint isn't displaced, but this person has orofacial pain. That's where I'm going to look at outside the occlusal realm because you know the person could be in their 50s, they have nowhere. Mm -hmm. Well, how could you say that bite relationship isn't necessarily working for that person? You yes. know. Exactly. Um, so th that to me, yeah, that to me is like a quick summary of looking at at where that plays a role. Yeah, yeah, makes makes complete sense. And when we when we just go a few steps back, and we we were talking about functional occlusion, could you could you just shortly summarize what is functional occlusion for you? What what is it? What are the most important parts of functional occlusion? So when I, I look at, like, I tell a lot of people that I'm a functionally driven cosmetic dentist. So, you know, versus just it's like, you know, I'm a functionally driven cosmetic dentist. And, and that to me is like, I've earned, you know, my place in the cosmetic world 
by doing a lot of functionally driven cosmetic dentistry. Patients coming in who had a lot of breakdown, who had a lot of wear, had a lot of erosion, um, mm -hmm. lost teeth, um, needed to have their vertical changed. Um, you know, a lot of situations like that where we're rebuilding their bite relationship for them, we're establishing a functional occlusion where, you know, we don't want to have interferences. We want to have guidance. We want to have a, a balanced bite relationship in terms of the forces that are generated on their teeth. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we do want to have a cosmetic end result that looks great, um, you know, but literally what got us there is a functional conversation, not necessarily, hey, how do you like your smile? Yeah. Yeah, I see. So, so that's really that's the the basic or the basis or or what you say the fundament of your treatment concept. It's the it's the the function of the the, the function of the mouth or the function of the occlusion that should be uh, completely correct. And then you look at the the other steps to to make so to say. Yes. And then, then is and if we look at more into detail for the functional occlusion, do you then work with canine guidance and anterior guidance? Is that is that the importance of the functional occlusion? Because I know from a French group, we, I spoke with a French group, and they they really go for group function when there is the lateral trusive movements. They really believe you should build in group function. What's your idea of the functional occlusion in that in that perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I look at, you know, I've been, I've been measuring what muscles do in patients' mouths using EMGs and T-scans, you mm -hmm. know, since about 2005. So, you know, when we look at what happens when someone's in group function, we know there's more muscle activity when back teeth touch in a lateral, lateral movement. Mm -hmm. So, and now I hear people say, it's like, well, you know, the more teeth that touch, you're spreading the load out more. I'm like, yep, I understand that. But you are also increasing the load because you're having more teeth touch. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing a, you know, all ceramic reconstruction on someone, you know, I really don't want to load, you know, premolars or molars in a lateral movement. You know, personally, I'm going to only have canine guidance. If you're concerned about um, the canine ceramics ability to take the load in a sheer movement, like going into canine guidance, well, rather than adding a premolar or multiple teeth to that shared guidance, I mean, I'd much rather do a monolithic, you know, lithium disilicate restoration versus a cutback and layered. I mean, when you look at it in terms of, you know, from a cosmetic standpoint, you know, the minor detail of a cutback and layered canine mm -hmm. versus a monolithic canine, you can get an excellent cosmetic result with a monolithic canine. I, I totally agree. You know, so, and to me, you're now increasing the sheer strength on that ceramic by 350 megapascals. So, you know, having a, a 500 megapascal thin bonded all ceramic. I mean, to me, that's doing great. And if you need yeah. to do something above and beyond that, then, you know, you could talk about a nighttime protective appliance. I personally yeah. would rather do that versus going into group function. Okay. Seems, seems, seems to make, seems to make sense. Do you ever, because sometimes you have those problems and, and uh, where you have a class two occlusion, 
and you want to build in something like a canine guidance, but it doesn't work. Is it, would it be okay for you just to to um, get the the lateral, the lower lateral, for example, a little bit in there to 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 touch the upper canine, or, or how do you? What would you what would your advice be? That's a great question, and and what I tell patients or tell tell doctors, you know, in in doing class two cases is. You know, one of the first things I do is, you know, you look at how, how severe class two are we talking about? And if you cannot get straight on canine guidance with mm -hmm. a guidance right up the cingulum, if you have to now start going to the distal aspect mm -hmm. of the axillary canine, it becomes very difficult for the patient to move in that, that, uh, that, in that direction when the tooth is distalized. So to me, I would look at the first premolar in that situation. Uh -huh. I would see how is the root of my first premolar. If if the root looks like a ice cream cone and it's very short, mm -hmm. you know, then that might be a situation where you would use shared guidance with maybe two premolars. But if you can do it where you initiate it on, you know the canine, and then it transfers to the mesial aspect of the first maxillary premolar. That's, mm -hmm. that's been my go-to. And a lot of times, you know, even if you're restoring a patient in that situation, even with veneers, um, it could be a very conservative to minimal prep where you just kind of, you're, you're adding almost like a ramp to the mesial aspect of the first premolar, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that's, that's been successful in, in my career. Okay. Okay. So that would be your advice to to also uh, get the the first premolar in in into the the lateral movements. Yeah, because if you think about it, it's your lower canine that's yeah. right in between the maxillary first premolar and canine. Yeah. So it's the yeah. lower canine that's actually still guiding off yeah. of the yeah. maxillary premolar. So that's yeah. yeah. That's what I've done. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah, I see. And 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 just to to talk a little bit more about the importance of the of the canine guidance, if if you can if you can get a canine guidance, of course, in a normal class one or in a small class two, um, uh, the reason for it is it it has also something to do with firing the nerves, right? You you talked about the 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 um, the, the triggering the muscles, so more muscle activity when we when we have the group function. Uh, and it has something to do not only with the load, I believe, but also with with the nerves that that are well because you have occlusion. Once you have occlusion, there is a signal from the nerve from the tooth going up, and it's also with the with the uh, lateral trusive movements. So that's also a little bit what 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 keeps the muscles from from firing, right? If you if you do not touch the tooth. Correct. So you know, anytime uh, you know, anytime you have more posterior involvement you will have more muscle activity mm -hmm. you will have more um nerve feedback through the trigeminal loop which yeah. which can cause patients to have headaches migraines and, and things like that you know really it's more importantly looking at it it's it's protecting it's protecting your dentistry you know yeah. i think when i went through occlusal camps you know I was kind of taught that somehow God invented canine guidance, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's not the case. I mean, canine and anterior guidance was invented by, by dentists. And the reason for that was really to, you know, try to protect our dentistry, you know, against yeah. power function. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, exactly. Our work. 
So I mean, to 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 get a better longevity of the work we do as a dentist. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's that's actually that's what it what it all what's what it's all about, right? I mean, exactly. in in a completely normal dentition, in a in a completely uh, untouched dentition with a with a group function with no complaints, you would probably not change anything if there is not so much wear and if, if it's um, a 70 year old patient who comes in with all with nice and shining teeth you, you are not the one who says okay we're gonna put some veneers on the, on the back of your canines because you you've lost your canine guidance right absolutely and you know what eric i i joke around about when i start lecturing uh when people come to my occlusion one course and i joke around that you know here you know when I was taught like centric relation from, uh, from Pete Dawson, I don't know if Dawson's textbook is popular, you know, yeah, I have it here in my, in my, I, it's okay. right here. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was the number one occlusal textbook in, in the United States. And yes. you know, I went through the Dawson series, God rest his soul. You know, I sat up front, I learned from Pete Dawson and, you know, it was, it, it was, it was a great continuum, but then, you know, I was told in that continuum, every one of your patients had yeah. to be in CR. Then I go home and, and then, you know, I'd romance the mandible and do what he said to do. And I found out like 99% of my patients aren't in CR, you know, and then just, as you said, I'd have those conversations. I'd be like, you know, listen, you, we have a problem. And the patient would be like, you know, well, doc, what's the problem? I'm like, well, you know, and when you initially touch and then you slide, all your teeth don't touch. And that's going to be a big problem over your lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, patients would, patients start asking me questions and they're like, well, well, when is this going to be a problem? And I'd be like, you know, any day now. Any, any day now. <laughs> and, and they'd be like, I'm 75 years old. I have no restorations in my mouth. And, and that, that to me was the big unlearning from, yeah. you know, going from everybody had to follow this philosophy to when is it when is it appropriate yeah yeah it makes makes total sense and if you if we would go a little bit broader so we we're we are mainly in now in fixed uh, uh prosthetics but if we look at removable prosthetics would you say you you also use the same principles or you use the same techniques to to check the the occlusion to check the functional occlusion or how do you how do you work with with the removables? So that's a great question, and I I did want to say early on the only time that we use group function is uh. is with is with a conventional denture. Yeah. So I mean um, I'm still going to use you know, a seated position in terms of using a Gothic arch tracer mm -hmm. um, in order to take a bite relationship, you know, mm -hmm. set with a centric tray. So I'm going to do that. Um, but, you know, to me, that's a situation where you do want a truly in the definition of it, a balanced occlusion where you want, um, I use lingualized balance. So where the patient slides left, both sides touch in order to keep yeah. their denture seated. Um, you know, you can go off of that depending on how many implants you have underneath it, you know, um, but other than that, if it's a truly conventional denture, you know, absolutely mm -hmm. a lingualized balanced occlusion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, I, um, I, I, I um, wanted to ask you if you still uh, use night guards 
um, because uh, some of the people are using a T-scan um, and they really believe that when you have everything properly in function and when you have everything perfectly arranged with the T-scan, and, and we, in a moment I will ask you more about what kind of techniques you use to check your function, but, but do you think you can, you can skip the night card then if, if, it's, if it's completely balanced or do you still see indications to use a night card? So, I mean, I, if you asked me that question eight years ago, I'd probably tell you that I use night guards very limited. Um, but no, I mean, do I still use night guards? I do, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and there's, there's a reason for that. So if we look at a certain subgroup of patients, um, even with only their canines touching in a lateral movement, they can still recruit 50% of their masseter and temporalis force. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of these patients are migraine patients because the sensory feedback that happens, you know, versus if they go right into a midline stop appliance, which would like simulate just your central teeth touching. Mm -hmm. um, now we can see 90, 95% reduction of, of elevator muscle activity. So an appliance similar to the NTI is something that I use in those patients. Um, and obviously sleep breathing disorder patients, you know, they have a sleep appliance. So I wouldn't necessarily yeah. call that a night guard for protection. That's more, you know, mm -hmm. that's a treatment appliance, but there still are certain subgroups of patients who do wear uh, a nighttime protective appliance. And then, then just a very uh, where I where I'm struggling a little bit with myself. What, when do you use your uh, night guard in the upper or in the lower jaw? What's Great your question. What's it's, your rationale about it? It's both. Um, so it's an upper midpoint stop appliance, and the lower is just um, so the upper goes uh, premolar to premolar, but it mm -hmm. only has it has a midpoint stop up front. Mm -hmm. And the lower goes just premolar to premolar. And really all it is, it's just a flat plane mm -hmm. against, against the maxillary discluder. It's called a discluder slider. Okay. And the reason for this is if, if you have the discluder in the maxillary arch or the lower mm -hmm. arch, mm -hmm. the opposing teeth eventually are going to wear into that appliance. So by having it plastic versus plastic, Patients mm -hmm. don't wear it. Um, it becomes really um, self-adjusting and it works out wow. really well. Very interesting. I, I, I haven't seen such an appliance before, I guess. It looks very interesting. I'm, I'm curious, what, what kind, could you tell us shortly a little bit about the clinical mastery series that you, uh, that you do, um, that you give for, for dentists? Could we, from, from Europe, for example, could we attend to your courses? Absolutely. So, so we do have our occlusion one and occlusion two course online and uh, oh. it's, uh, it's online.clinicalmastery.com. So we have our occlusion one and occlusion two course currently online. Um, in the future, we'll have our two remaining courses online. Unfortunately, the hands-on portions are, are missed out, but we are, we are looking at ways in order for people overseas um, or mm -hmm. if they, they can't uh, participate with the hands-on, how we can actually get some of the hands-on stuff to them. 
So there's that on there. We also have an anterior aesthetics course given by Jason Olitsky. The lecture portion of that is also online as well as um, a photography lecture. So if you're looking to take better pictures in, in your practice, and if you really wanna see, you know, take your practice to another level and how much better that can assist your patients in understanding what you see in your clinical exam, we have a photography course that teaches you that as well. And there wow. is lots of free free stuff on the online form as well. So it's worth having a look uh, on uh, on that uh, on that platform. Um, but about well, functional occlusion, you talked in the beginning a little bit about sleep apnea. And I think nowadays it's it's I'm I'm more and more aware of it in the practice that I look into sleep apnea if I see a lot of tooth wear, for example, or I see a certain pattern of tooth wear, com compared with with a little bit the, well um, the well let's say the body mass index of the patient, uh, the problems with breathing and and so on. Are there any other things that you think we should look uh, when we see our patients, or or how do you see or how do you think that someone might have sleep apnea when when you look in your patients and, and also when you look at the at the occlusion yes is there so a correlation I, I was actually, yes so i was actually just looking for uh something so i i do think there's a there's a correlation mm -hmm. um and you know one of the things i think it's it's you know, very beneficial. And this is part of like, I know it's, it's kind of might be a little bit hard to see. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things is very beneficial that I think that you should add to your, um, your health history forms. Um, these are simply, you know, questionnaires that you can search on Google, you can look mm -hmm. at the questions, you can put it onto a, a Word document or a keynote document. And um, the first one is an Epworth sleepiness scale. And that is a series of questions from zero to three. And if anyone really rates at a seven or above, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that is indicative of a sleep breathing disorder. Um, so that alone warrants a referral to a pulmonologist. You know, I don't know, you know, in New Jersey, I cannot make as a dentist in New Jersey, I cannot make the diagnosis mm -hmm. of a sleep breathing mm -hmm. disorder. No, in we yeah, Okay, in Pennsylvania, the dentist in Pennsylvania can. So oh. if you can't, yeah, so, um, but the Epworth sleepiness scale is, is really good. There's another one called the subjective sleep evaluation. Um, that's really good. And even the acronym stop bang, if you look up mm -hmm. um, stop bang and you look at those questions, I think those are really important to understand. You know, I don't know what's like, you know, in the Netherlands, but like in New Jersey, it seems like every one of our patients is hypertensive. At, you know, anymore, yeah. you know, if you take blood pressure screenings on your patients, you know, um, but I have a lot of young females who come in who are hypertensive and they're fit, you know, you look at them, they're fit females, you know, and doctors want to put these, these females on, you know, blood pressure medications and not really understanding, well, what is the cause of this, you know, individual's mm -hmm. blood pressure who's eating normal and, and, you know, obviously appears to be really fit, you know? So if you look at an underlying hypertensive issue that really cannot be explained, you know, mm -hmm. coupled with anxiety, you know, young females, hypertensive anxiety, I mean, you really should look at sleep breathing disorder as, as the root cause of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I, I, I totally agree. And, and I have seen a lot of patients in my, in my practice and I do a lot of uh, wear. So a lot of severe tooth wear treatments. And then I, I also use the screening skills that you, that you just uh, talked about. And I already sent, well, well, I think more than 10 or 15 people um, uh, to um, uh, the pulmonologist and they all had severe sleep apnea. And, and, and it's so, so also so thankful from, from a patient perspective that a dentist is telling you that you have a problem with sleeping. I mean, I mean, it's kind of, kind of interesting. And if you really look into occlusion, if you really have some attention for the breathing, for all those factors, what kind of things you can do as a dentist. And, and that is, I believe that is, that is something that is more, that gives more value to our profession. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And if you, if you look at the, at the functional occlusion, if you would sum it up, what would be for you? What, what's the secret of the functional occlusion? Um, you know, if, if I, if I say, what is it going to be something in terms of, you know, uh, from a diagnosis standpoint, you know, it's really taking a step back you know, looking at the muscles, looking at the joint and looking at, looking at the teeth and seeing, you know, measuring instability. And then more importantly, when you have a lot of skin in the game, you know, when you are treating those patients who are either unstable mm -hmm. or even if you're treating a stable patient, but you are doing a significant amount of dentistry on those patients, those are people where you should definitely take your occlusal skills to another level, make sure that you are measuring everything, balancing the bite relationship and, you know, giving them the best possible outcome for your dentistry to survive. Yeah. And what do you, because when I know you are, you are kind of using a lot of technology for, for occlusion, you're using the T-scan, you just talked about it a little bit. What, what is the importance of, of using such devices for you? What, what does it give you? Well, you know, when we really, to really unlearn what we we're taught in dental school about marks of paper, mm -hmm. I think that that is the most important thing that you can learn and understand from a T-scan is a T-scan is going to allow the paper marks that you see on teeth to come to life. So, really, so, so you would suggest that when, when I look at paper marks, that's not always what I'm, what I think I'm looking at. I mean, if, if I see a little bit of ink, then, then you're saying that with the T-scan, I might see something different or, or is it that not? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we're going to do a, a webinar and, and, you know, I'm going to show some people on the webinar that we're going to do, you know, uh, and I break it down just to four teeth on a slide. And I'm going to, and I'm going to have you, you know, just think to yourself, you know, which one of these four teeth is a problem or which one of these four teeth would you really not want the person to walk out with this, with the force that they have on this tooth? You know, it, it's, and even though I've been using it for uh, 17, 16 years now, since 2005, wow. So even though I've been using it for 16 years, there are still times when before I take it out on someone and I look at all the marks on their teeth and I try to predict and I try to look at things, 
-hmm. And there's still times when I measure it, I, I still shake my head and I say, I can't believe that this is this is what it is right now. It is what you thought was perfect. I, right? Yeah. When you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's exactly what it is. It literally is yeah, just yeah. when I thought it was perfect. Let me take exactly. out the T-scan yeah, yeah, yeah. and it smacks well, me in the face. <laughs> so, so yeah, you would actually say if you want to sleep good at night, then then don't use the T-scan or not. No, I'm just kidding. No, but. you know, you know really what it is. I, you know, I think a lot of people think I talk about it in order to scare dentists. That's not what it is. It's really freeing because I have been just where you have been and, and everyone else has been where you look at things and it looks so perfect, but the the patient tells you it just doesn't, doesn't feel right. Or you, you look at, at maybe all ceramic restorations that you placed and the marks looked perfect and the patient comes back in a year and something's broken mm -hmm. and you would say, gee, and you know, Anytime, I don't know about you and I don't know if your listeners, you know, anytime something like that would happen, I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't. I didn't blame the lab. I mean, you know, you, you might joke around and blame the lab to the, to the patient, mm -hmm. but really you internalize that and you, and we blame ourselves, you know, well, how could, how could I have been better? What, what did I miss? And, and what was I doing wrong in this situation? And really T-scan is freeing because what it allows you to understand is really what you were taught is wrong. Not that something you're doing is wrong is what you were taught to believe is wrong. And once you understand that, you know, you really can be, can really be a much better dentist and really have dentistry not fail and look great and not fracture and, and you know last a long period of time have patients yeah. wear dentures and say wow you know this fits great so but because it has of course something to do about what you're looking at if if the if the message of what the occlusion paper gives you is wrong or at least your interpretation of the of the marks is wrong, then it becomes very, very difficult, right? If, if from the moment that the, the paper marks are not like a, a thick paper mark is a high force of occlusion, then it really becomes very difficult for you to get it right because then you think you're right, but you might look at something completely different. Yeah, I mean, just in summary, marks don't mean anything. Uh -huh. just means that there's so it means that it means that there's a contact but it doesn't mean anything in terms of force nothing so so i i thought uh, today i i finished my patients with the paper mark and i thought i was doing a good job but now you're telling me that i shouldn't okay well i think that that all sums it up a little bit for for what what i wanted to talk in this podcast about the importance of the of the functional occlusion when we start as a dentist uh, about not treating tooth by tooth, but doing like quadrant dentistry or full arch dentistry that we should really take care of the concepts we're working with. Um, and as you said, uh, Dr. John Nosti explained all the principles, what he's working with also with removable and with fixed prosthesis and what kind of tools he uses in his practice. If you want to know more about it, he's also presenting a webinar and um, for the Karma members, the webinar will be available on our platform. And please go look at the webinar of Dr. John Nosti. For now, I would really like to thank you for your time, for this great interview, uh, and hope that in the future, I will be able to visit you to do one of your courses, because the if you you just told me that the Olitsky, uh, he is also uh, doing a course for you. Well, he's one of the guys that uh, through YouTube, uh, because I, I looked at his videos on YouTube, 
showed me a little bit how to use the leaf gauge. So in that way, I really want to, to thank him for that, but also you, because I, I, I've been watching a few webinars from the T-Scan and that's very, very, very helpful, very well explained. So please go to the webinars from Dr. John Nosti. Thanks for your time. Um, and uh, Thank you very much for having me. Thank you and uh, have, a, have a great time and hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Thank you again. I appreciate it.